Hello, creative people. Welcome to Creative Conversations. My name is Hollis Citron, and we are so happy that you have chosen to spend this hour with us. So I am owner and founder of I Am Creative and Express Yourself Publishing, and I am on a mission to expand the definition of creativity beyond a pencil and a paintbrush and empower people, especially adults, to own their voice that come in so many different forms. So this space was created to talk with people with all different jobs, hobbies, and interests, and have conversations about experiences and perspectives all centered around three questions. One, how do you define creativity? Two, how do you incorporate it into your life? And three, why do you think it's important? Then we have a free-flowing conversation and we see where it goes. So I have had the opportunity to talk to musicians, Reiki masters, mediums, doctor, lawyer, real estate agents, and so many more. And these conversations explore the reality that creativity is not cute, it is necessary. People have defined creativity as their soul's essence, courage, imagination, basically all that we are and wanna be. So sharing these stories expands one's thinking and opens up self-expression to feel more empowered, connected, and dare I say, happy. My inspiring guest for today is David Haig. David is a Northeastern Pennsylvania-based licensed clinical social worker, gerontologist, and university educator, currently serving as an assistant professor of social work and a field director of the, I'm sorry if I mispronounced this, Misericordia University Social Work Program. David also oversees the Gerontology Minor and Geriatric, Geriatric Care Management Certificate as Miser I'm sorry, Misericordia University, in addition to maintaining a small counseling and geriatric care management practice. David, welcome to the space. Hi, Hollis. Can you hear me? I can. I so apologize for completely just <laughs> flubbering all over that <laughs> intro. Oh, that's okay. It's uh, Misericordia University. It's uh, I believe it's Latin for um, from the heart, if I if I recall correctly. Oh, well, that's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Yeah. So it just didn't roll off my tongue. So I apologize. Um, but David, so, so happy to have you here. Could you please tell everybody a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, so like you uh, mentioned, I'm a, a professor at Misericordia University. I'm involved in the social work education and the gerontology education there. Um, I really in enjoy being in that environment. They have um, some really great values of mercy, service, justice, and hospitality, which line up nicely with my profession of social work and, and my own personal values. So um, I like being there and being able to assist people in their learning and um, be in a collaborative environment with other folks. And then <clears throat> I um, got into working with older adults about halfway through my uh, social work career. I started out working with children and then realized some unmet needs in society among the older adult population. So started to develop a passion doing that and then got involved more in the clinical side of social work and uh, care management after some work in a, a nursing home, uh, an inpatient rehab unit, and some other things like that. Um, in addition to my professional life, I'm also a fairly creative person. So 
I was really intrigued by your podcast and the opportunity to have a, a nice conversation with you. Um, I've done some painting and uh, sculpture, recorded an album. Um, so just uh, I value creativity in a lot of ways. And I think it actually intersects really nicely with professional work. So I'm looking forward to exploring uh, creativity and, and some ideas with you tonight. And I'm thankful Thank for the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. And I'm so curious because it's, I mean, you really have worked with the whole spectrum of people. I mean, you literally worked from kids, like you said, all the way up to seniors and um, such an interesting mixture of all that you're doing. This is going to be a great conversation. So um, we're going to dive into the would you rather question first, and okay. then, then we'll dive into the first question. So I did what I do want to recognize um, and acknowledge the people that are here live. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Um, please feel free to type in any questions or comments into the chat box where we can see them. So, okay. So, David, would you rather teleport into another country or another world? Wow, that's a heavy question. Um, <laughs> well, I, I love other countries and I've been to a few um, and I would certainly love to visit more. But I'm going to have to say, if it were possible, another world, because I've not yet thought that to be possible or had that opportunity. So I'd go that way, I think. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe, I'd like if to know maybe if we visit the other world, they'll have some sort of technology that can also help me easily get back to other countries in our world. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So, actually, while we're here, I mean, we'll explore this a little, a little bit later, but where have you been? Like, tell me one of the countries that you've been to right now that really stands out. Um, the last country that I was in, other than the United States, was um, Nicaragua. Mm hmm. So um, I got an opportunity. I used to volunteer for about seven years at a free medical clinic. And um, we had an opportunity to do a medical service trip for some, some folks that were in need of medical care there. And it was a, a really good opportunity to learn about the culture and also hopefully provide some assistance and, um, you know, and enjoy the company of other people and other cultures. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. My God, I'm sure you have a million stories to tell. Yeah, there were there were a lot um, in terms of the travel. I, I traveled to another country um, <clears throat> as an undergraduate student called Guyana, and I got mm -hmm. to do a professional practice opportunity there, where um, we were able to. I was able to work with um, youth who got kicked out of school and and got involved in a trade school, and then I did some HIV counseling. Um, but I was able to travel in the uh, in this little plane with a gentleman named Malcolm Chanisu, who was a National Geographic pilot, I believe. And so I saw some really interesting things like a blue butterfly that would kill you if you touched it or um, oh termite mounds that were bigger than people. And I crawled out on my belly to the edge of the world's largest single uh, drop waterfall. So that it was a really interesting experience in addition to the professional things that I learned and the cultural things. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Wow, we could spend the whole podcast talking about this. Yeah, it was beautiful. But um, take it in the direction you'd like to. Let's, let's <laughs> there we go. So let's go with this. But yeah, I mean, I just kind of want to acknowledge that. Like when you have these experiences, <laughs> it's just so important to understand different cultures and to just get a window into these other spaces to be able to form better connection. I just think it's so important. 
I agree wholeheartedly. Actually, it's one of our core competencies within the social work profession is to develop cultural competence. So there's nine nine core competencies that social workers aspire to achieve, and and that would be one of them. And certainly part of that is just having an openness to learning about others and, and differences and things that unite us. So it's a very valuable pursuit for sure. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, so let's dive into the first official question, which is, um, David, how do you define creativity? So um, I, I think creativity can express itself in a variety of ways and contexts, but <clears throat> I, I, the definition maybe that kind of starts to pop into my head would, would involve the concept of an integration of authenticity. So maybe finding a true voice, whatever that might be. And uh, for an artist, that might be, you know, the quality of the line they use or color or, you know, shading or things like that for someone in a helping profession that might involve um, developing a sense of one's own identity and confidence to express that and live that out in the world. Um, maybe some reflexive thinking. So the ability to think outside of yourself and in a broader context, perhaps. And, um, like uh, Milton Glaser might allude to in his, his book, Art is Work, uh, just hard work. <laughs> um, I think, you know, sometimes people think of creativity as, as just being a naturally flowing thing. And, and certainly it can be at times, but uh, in other contexts, certainly it takes um, some iterative work and, and some significant effort. And I think a lot of times it, it's often focused on getting a new result. So how that expresses can be very different, but I would say those are some of the initial things that pop into my head when I think of defining creativity. Mm. Um, it might also be too just reorganizing pre-existing elements. So maybe not even making something new, but um, learning to see it in a new way. I guess. Perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Oh my gosh, there's so much here to talk about. Um, what do I want to touch on first? Um, I'm just going to kind of reiterate and say, you said creativity expresses itself in many ways, integration of authenticity, um, identifying um, in a helping profession, one's own identity. I think I want to go there, one's own identity, because you've worked with so many different ages, mm -hmm. this idea, and then you got inspired to work with seniors. I don't know. Talk to me about that word identity. Sure. So. Um, certainly our identity is, I guess, um, throughout our lifetime, a work in progress, I would say, you know, who we are at, um, birth and then, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, 30, forties, fifties, you know, into the latter, uh, years that we have certainly changes and varies. So I think learning to be authentic and, um, understand who we are, uh, is a good place to spend some time. Um, and, and certainly I think we could do that through um, a lot of different ways, you know, through our family and our belief system, through education, through the exercise of creativity, um, finding beauty in the world, you know, the, um, learning about difference and, um, you know, novel, novel things that are available to us to assist each other and, and meaningfully connect. I think there's certainly a lot there to, to unpack. Yeah. It's just so interesting because it's come up so much in talking with people. I just finished a summit with um, recently my multi-author book that came out, Creativity is Whatever You Want It to Be. And 
20 amazing contributors. And it's just this whole, it's been coming up a lot with this whole idea of identity and really going inside. Because mm -hmm. if you're not comfortable with who you are, if you don't really know who you are, then it's, there's, there isn't connection. There is an authentic connection. There's something that could be a fake connection. Um, you aren't truly happy. I mean, in when it boils down to it, because you don't really know who you are, because <laughs> you're not taking the time. And there's so much sadness that goes on and frustration and everything when you don't take that time. So I just think that that word identity is such, it's such a powerful thing to be aware of who we actually are. And especially as in speaking with seniors, there's, they, there's so much life that goes on and so much, especially in, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but um, what is your take on, on how seniors are seen in compared from the U.S. to other countries? So we have a primarily individualistic focus in the United States, which has its advantages in terms of what people might achieve or, you know, um, allowing hard work to produce, you know, unique results sometimes for people. But I think there's also some wisdom, you know, in other cultures that have more of a collective, a collective focus I actually just went to a really um, interesting workshop uh, with a professor from Millersville University. And um, she gave a talk on the African concept of Ubuntu, which had to do with like your connectedness to other people. So I, I think there's certainly some wisdom in realizing um, that, that we need each other and that we need to um, connect uh, to meet people's needs. But also um, it's an important component of health to be connected to other people. And I think people who are more chronologically gifted have a lot of wisdom and life experiences to share. And so I think we would do well to get back to um, spending a little more time thinking about, you know, what those who have more experience um, have to offer in the conversation. And I think from a policy standpoint and, you know, practically, I think it's, it's also really important to have stakeholders at the table when we're making decisions about you know, changes and, and policies and programs and laws and, you know, things that impact older adults, I think the more we can have them at the table, um, the better the results will be for everybody. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The word, so as I said, the word seniors, how do you feel about that word? I, I have no aversion to the word seniors. Um, I, I typically say older adults, the, the terminology can, can vary. Um, so I, I'm just I, I've just heard more older adults and have stuck with that that language. But um, we I have like this, that. yeah we have this idea though in, in the social sciences um, of person first language. So no matter what identity we're talking about, like for example, if somebody has a disability, um, we conceptualize them as a person with a disability rather than a disabled person because just that one aspect of who they are as a whole person is not only that one thing, right? They're also a family member, an employee, an artist, you know, different, different aspects of their identity um, also have importance. So I think it's, it's good to use that person first language in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it goes back to that whole idea of labels and mm -hmm. fitting people in boxes and, yeah. and just not um, considering themselves as a whole person that has uh, many different aspects to them. 
I actually did a, an art project on labeling and identity um, back in college a while back. I got a, a grant from the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts to produce it, and it was called um, Reflections and Integrative Examination of Labeling and Identity. And what I had done was I took um, some mirrors and I had framed them, but I framed a, a spot on the bottom without the mirror for different labels that people apply toward other people groups that can be hurtful things that I've heard people say or call other people. And so the idea was that people would look in the mirror, you know, having read, read a statement about the social justice project. And, and the idea was to have them have a personal experience with a negative label that maybe they didn't um, initially have a connection to. But when you have to look yourself in the eye, when you're looking at a word that can hurt other people, you know, sometimes it really brings some new context. Oh my gosh. I love uh, what was, did you get feedback? Yeah. Um, it, it, a lot of people seem to, um, express a connection to, um, you know, deepening their understanding of how words affect others, or maybe, um, you know, they, they found connections to words that, that impacted groups that they belong to or things like that. So it was a really, um, I, I took it into different schools and, and had people look at it. And so some of the, some of the professors, um, you know, sent some of the student comments like that. And it, it was really helpful to understand, you know, their points of view. So important. I was just going to ask, where was this put? So it was a, um, it was module. It, you took it into different places. Yeah, it was, it was modular. It was rather controversial though, because it, it had, um, some, some pretty tough, tough language, but it were, they were all things that were, I actually kind of looked at the most common negative labels that people apply to other people groups at the time, you know, mm -hmm. to, to try and be representative. So I, I would never show it without the context, you know, mm -hmm. where people could read the statement. And, um, it, it's since, uh, no longer exists, but, um, I lost them in a move, but, um, it, it was a valuable experience, I think. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Thank you for actually doing that. Um, I have to say it's making me think like my uh, my brother is 18 months younger than me and he's um, he's special needs. So when he was born, lack of oxygen to the brain. So, you know, way back, you'd call it retarded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's cognitively disabled and um, his speech was impaired. So he doesn't have clear speech, but um, he's very you know, he has a lot of strengths and a lot of interests and a lot of other, if he could speak, he would be a sportscaster. Like he is just knows everything about sports and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, I bring it up because my students, you know, in all ages, um, in all the places I've taught, I would hear them use the word every once in a while retarded. And I just don't have a tolerance for it. So I'd say, you know what, in my room, we don't use that word. And I'd say my brother is handicapped and people would call him retarded and um, they'd be like, Miss Citron, I, I didn't mean, you know, no disrespect. I said, I understand that. I said, but I just want to tell you how it makes other people feel. Mm -hmm. um, I said, my brother can't speak, but he's the most, one of the most intelligent people that I know. And then, you know, it would just change. And if they ever, if, somebody in the room heard it or re or they sl it slipped out, they'd say, Mr. Tron, I apologize. I'd say, you know, it's okay. But it just brought awareness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to, you know, wake up people who are unfamiliar with the impact of language, you know, and, and kind of help give a little more context. And I think sometimes, too, um, 
I, I like to assume goodwill until I have evidence of something else. You know, so sometimes it's just people lack exposure to different modes of thought and experiences. And so I, I really like that approach that you have. I think that's pretty cool. There's, there's, um, there's a psychologist named Gerard Egan, and he has uh, an interesting uh, approach um, to how we kind of conceptualize problems. And, and so, you know, labels often relate to problems. And so sometimes um, he, he, he talks about how, you know, someone comes to you with a story. And so maybe they have an experience with a certain, certain um, you know, a certain group of people or certain things that have happened in their lives. And then from that, you know, through a relationship with someone who's assisting them, then they develop a real story. And so it's the initial story, but some some additional observations that have been added in to add a little more context and clarity, perhaps. And then we kind of get to the preferred story. What is it that we hope comes out of this situation? And so, like in that mm -hmm. case you're talking about, um, you know, how do we begin to use language that's more affirming of people and respectful? And so hopefully, you know, when, when those folks walk away to other experiences, you know, they take that with them beyond the art class. So I think that's really, really great that you've, you've been able to do that. Thank you. Well, it feels good within, like, I'm sure with so much of what you do, it is about, I mean, people come, we all come with our own experiences and we come with our own stories and perspectives. And if we don't have, like you said earlier, if there isn't that connection or if there isn't that experience, people don't have really to draw from it. So it's a matter of what I what is a is a continual process of learning. Um, for me, I can say is this awareness on how to approach, how to it's that whole react respond. Mm -hmm. So how do you respond to a situation um, which is more thoughtful and you know taking a breath at times instead of for me I see you know reactive is that well why would you say that you don't call people retarded and you mm -hmm. know. Uh, instead of, you know, taking that breath and, and, you know, giving more of a context and a story behind it, which makes people be able to relate better. Yeah, I, I like that point of view. It, it actually aligned. I, I heard you also talk about strengths before. Um, and, and so in social work, we have this idea, it's called the person and environment context. And so what we think about is the unique factors of a person. Mm -hmm. But also, so I think about it as two, two concentric or no, two circles, like one inside the other. So the smaller one, you know, you would put the word person in it and the broader one, you'd put the environment and then you could draw lines from the, the second one and kind of figure out all the context where the person has um, connections. So it might be like their family, their faith community, their, um, their local neighborhood. It could be, um, you know, a, a cultural context, a country, it could be, um, you know, their, their educational experiences, it could be the relationships they have. And so when you start to think about the person and then add on top of that, all the other things that, that interact with them in their environment, you start to understand why people make certain decisions or have certain experiences. And, and so it just adds a lot more uh, context, like you said, you know, to better understand the person in their environment. And, and I think that makes a big difference. And then we also look a lot at strengths in social work too. So we would consider a problem that someone has, but we would also look at um, the, the past successes they've had or resources that are available to them, supports, um, you know, different things like that. So that when we address a problem, 
we do it from the standpoint of understanding them in their broader environment and also in um, in in context of the resources they have that might be able to give them a little more sense of resilience or the ability to move forward toward a, a preferred outcome. So um, those those thoughts you shared, you know, certainly overlap a lot with the type of work that I get to do. Well, thank you. And I really, a lot of, well, I think it's, I don't, I mean, you just have to meet people where they are. Yeah. So I know with all that you do, you're dealing, you're looking at, um, you know, a larger group of people. It's like being in the classroom, you're looking at a larger group of people and assessing a situation and seeing how you can meet every, meet the needs um, of the larger group. But then when it's broken down into individuals, like I would have people within an art room be like, well, I can't do that or I don't want to do that. So then it was a matter of, okay, thinking on your feet and being like, okay, well, what do you enjoy? Why well, like sports? Okay. What teams do you like? I like, you know, these teams, I like the Lakers. I like, oh, what color are their uniforms? Purple and yellow. Oh, well, what if we took something with the Lakers and then applied it to what we were doing? Then it gives them that whole, it's that broader understanding of like looking at them and then applying it to what we're doing. And then there's interest. Yeah, I, I think that's a really uh, interesting thing to look at. Um, I, I think the stories that we tell really connect to the outcomes that we have. And I, I don't think necessarily that just because you say something, it 100% happens. But if you tell yourself that you can't like or, or won't do something, it, it's important to differentiate whether somebody perceives they can't or they're not willing to do something. But um, the story that we tell really matters. And so uh, there's this interesting um, thing that you can use called motivational interviewing. It's uh, by a, a psychologist named uh, Miller or Will, William Miller. And um, he looks at like people's level of willingness to commit to a new outcome or a change. And it's a really helpful strategy because like, for example, if somebody hasn't yet thought about a change, you know, then your job is to um, help educate them about the potential benefits, or maybe they've thought about it, they just are ambivalent and they don't know which way to go. So you help them weigh the pros and the cons, or, you know, maybe they're at the stage where they're wanting to make a change, but they don't know how. And so you could coach them and support them, or, you know, maybe they're making the change, um, but they're at risk to not be able to sustain it. So you look at the potential barriers that they're going to face and kind of help them plan for it. And so, um, you know, little tools and strategies like that and, and helping people speak in a positive way about the future really does matter. Um, I find a lot of times when someone says I can't do something, it turns out they can't, but perhaps not because it's not within their capability, but maybe some self-limitation that, that we put on ourselves at times as, you know, vulnerable people, we sometimes do mm -hmm. that. But um, it's kind of like when you're trying to stretch yourself creatively, since, since a lot of your audience might be more art artistically inclined, you could think about, you know, using that new technique or enhancing your level of realism or expression. You know, it's, it's not that you can't do it, but it's like you feel you can't do it and you have to push yourself slightly past that line to get into the next room. Yeah. Well, I mean, what so my mission is to expand the societal definition of creativity mm -hmm. beyond just drawing and painting so who i am 
who my mission is to reach is really everybody <laughs> because I want to empower people that to see whether you're sitting around a business table um, or, you know, arena or, you know, to the arts, to social work, to the sciences, that it's within everything that we do. And this whole concept of what creativity is it's just, it's amazing. I love all of, I've spoken to over 150 people and hearing everybody's different perspectives where there's overlaps and differentiations are just incredible. So it's just been, I love that you said this whole separation of the words, like when you're talking to somebody, when they say they can't or they won't, I think that's such an important point to bring up because it brings up so much, there's so much fear and there can be so much behind that because people maybe just don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the world can be scary sometimes, right? It, there, there's some things out there that are difficult. And so sometimes we develop these coping strategies to deal with that, you know, where we pull ourselves, you know, away from moving forward because it, it might also come with some risk, right? And some of those risks are very real um, or maybe someone's had some past difficulties and, in their life. And, and so certainly uh, maybe people need to build a little courage or things like that happen, but um, it's worth doing, right? You know, uh, moving forward toward a better future or toward a place that we'd prefer is, is certainly worth the effort. And so that I really enjoy um, helping a student discover that or helping a client in a direct way. It's really an honor when somebody lets you, um, into their their deep places in their life and and trust you to to help them with that is is truly um something that i hold hold closely and, and take very seriously yeah i appreciate that and i totally that those words honor and trust i find that trust is such a huge huge thing in the space that i'm in now which is um you know working with individual clients and groups and um, and always was in the classroom. If you do not have trust, um, you, you don't, you don't grab them. <laughs> they have to know that they can, they can trust you. They can trust the space that they're in. They can feel safe. Yeah. It's the old adage that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. It's, um, mm. you know, we have to build that rapport and that sense of trust, you know, before I wouldn't open up to somebody I didn't trust. Right. So certainly, I shouldn't expect anyone else to do that. So we, we have to um, put in some effort to be intentional and um, helpful to people and create a, a comfortable environment for them, for sure. Yeah, so they can be expressive in whatever way that is, whether it's through their voice or their actions. or mm -hmm. Yeah. So before we move on to the second question, maybe a little bit more on like what led you to the point that you're at now? Like, Were you always in social work? So that's a really great question. <clears throat> my father was a social worker and um, my mom is, is a professor and a gerontologist and a nurse practitioner. And my grandmother was a, a nursing home administrator. So oh, I, was wow. always, I, I was always <laughs> around these helping people um, and, and I really appreciated that. Um, so it, it certainly um, guided me. You know, I, I wasn't one for... Um, you know, doing maybe more of the direct medical treatment. Like I couldn't see myself, you know, maybe being a physician or um, potentially I maybe could have went down the nursing path, but just social work kind of spoke to me. I, I really appreciated the 
connection with other people and, you know, trying to help them resolve problems in, in creative ways. And it seemed to connect with me. Uh, but an interesting story surrounding creativity is when I, right when I was about to go to college, I, I was playing music at the time in a band um, that I had liked um, from Philadelphia. Um, their guitar player, I think they got sick or injured or something. So they weren't able to play for this tour. And I got invited to tour with this band. Um, and so I was kind of like thinking about not going to school and then going to play with this band. And it was kind of a, a tough situation, but I, I ended up choosing to go to school and, you know, kind of went down that route. And I, you know, I kept the creativity um, as, as a personal joy, you know, for mm -hmm. myself and, and was able to still do that. But, um, you know, since we're talking about creativity, I thought that might be a little interesting story to add in. Yeah, well, we're going to dive in and go further on this. But, you know, I would say that also in before we leave this, I mean, with teaching and with social work, there is so much creativity going on in there all the time. I, I mean, you figure with problem solving, with connection, with like imagining, like t tell me how you see that before we leave this and go to the next. Sure. So um, what I like, too, is um, the university where I teach, it's a liberal arts school. So it requires that students not only get the disciplinary knowledge of social work, but they also have a, a rich exposure to the humanities. And so um, certainly I think that helps them develop a greater sense of um, their own identity through exploring, you know, important topics and, and, and disciplines. But um, they also learn things that become important to them um, when they're working with people. So like, for example, you know, if somebody has taken uh, an American history course and then they understand um, what it might be like for a Vietnam veteran um, who experienced, um, you know, difficulties in their life and they're trying to get some help for it, you know, versus somebody who may not be a veteran or a veteran of a different war. Or, you know, I've walked into some clients' houses and um, one of the recent clients I worked with had a beautiful art collection. Um, he'd spent his whole life collecting art. And so, you know, that was my, my understanding of art and appreciation for art allowed us to develop a therapeutic relationship really quickly. Whereas if I didn't have that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to connect to a big part of him. So I think certainly, you know, even though people may study a particular discipline, having a broad um a broad exposure to the humanities is, is also valuable on top of that. I think they complement each other very well. Yeah. Yeah. So far, just in this half hour of our conversation, the word connection has come up a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is. There's so much to connection and um, just awareness and listening. I think especially is interesting. Um, we went to the beach as a family today and my mom, um, who is 78, and my brother was there, and uh, my son, and anyway. So, but my mom was just like, I so appreciate the fact that my son and daughter, my daughter couldn't come today, but they're 18 and 21. She said that they want to be with us, <laughs> that they want to hang out because at the age that they are, there could be this disconnection. But there's so much of a connection, and my kids love her. Um, and I'm grateful for it too, because I've seen where people are like, I don't really want to hang out with them. I want to hang with my friends or whatever. But yeah, I yeah. just felt a need to say that. 
No, I, th- I think that's great. I think um, intergenerational connection is really important for a lot of reasons. And, and you know, one being that um, I think it helps keep, you know, your mother or, or anybody, you know, in that age group connected to their family, which I think most people would probably find meaningful. But it's also an opportunity, you know, to share wisdom and joy and happiness. Um, you know, there's this idea of the intergenerational home as well. So sometimes where you can have multiple generations kind of living in the same home. Um, yeah. As my grandparents aged, my, my parents ended up building a new home and um, had an apartment attached to it so my grandparents could live there. And so created a nice opportunity for them to, you know, age in a space where they had some support and um, but also can maintain connection. And I think like we've talked about that a lot, but I think that is a significant component to health is, is being connected to others in whatever way that is for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So David, you mentioned some things, but let's dive into, um, so how do you incorporate more creativity into your own life? So, um, I actually do creative exercises personally and things like that. So <clears throat> I jot down some, um, book ideas and things I might like to explore. Um, I'm currently, uh, at, at chapter three of my dissertation. So I'm working on a PhD in, in uh, leadership uh, with a specialization in gerontology. So I'm looking at ways to evaluate how caregivers of people with dementia um, might be better supported uh, in a behavioral neurology clinic to help them um, resolve some challenges they have around quality of life. So that's the way I get to do that, um, do some volunteering, um, but also when I work with clients and when I work with students, I get to be really creative. So <clears throat> I may have a student who has less experience in a particular area. And so I can help support that and nurture that in a way that moves them forward and feel more confident with the work that they're going to do. So that's maybe one example, or maybe somebody comes to class with a new type of problem they've not yet experienced and we get to do a brainstorming session as a class and process that in a way that helps the student you know discover new opportunities to kind of deal with that or maybe in my uh, work with clients directly um, I get to help them conceptualize new perspectives about a, a problem so reframing an issue can really help like for example sometimes when somebody has some anxiety, there's this phenomena called the approach avoidance cycle. And so what happens is, you know, people are fearful about something. And so they avoid it because it feels better in the short term. But the long term consequences of avoiding a problem start to add up and then they become another stressor. And so it's like a stressor on top of the anxiety. And so sometimes helping people creatively find ways to confront how to deal with things in the short term that are uncomfortable is an opportunity. And that might be, you know, learning new stress management strategies, um, relying on some additional support resources or some new education, things like that. Um, could be developing some resources, um, planning uh, for different barriers that might come up, helping people resolve ambivalence or connecting them to people who've been in their shoes before, kind of things like that, maybe. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, uh, ah, he said so many things, which are, it's, yeah. I mean, being challenged, I, 
I personally can't just sit and do. I remember way back when, this was like 25, 30 years ago, um, I was doing some kind of a temp job and I had to sit in this interview and it was a filing. They were asking me about filing and they were like, why do you want to file? I was like, I don't want to file. <laughs> I really don't. Right. This is just like, I just needed a job. I was like 20 something and I just needed a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I kind of got into teaching and like, you know, doing my own artwork and all this kind of stuff, it's like never boring. <laughs> like there's always, like you're saying, when you are working with an ind- individual or a group, like you mentioned, like brainstorming and processing and new opportunities. This is a continual process that people are doing all the time, whether they're aware of it or not. Mm-hmm. Even like brainstorming, what am I going to eat? <laughs> like, what am I going to, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to, these are all creative expressions, but I think it's so beautiful in such a great space. And I can tell that you're the kind of person that really is very patient and, um, in these situations to be able to say, okay, that's a great point that you made. Let's brainstorm that process it and come up with a new way to do that stress management um, and approaching and this whole with anxiety. It's so true. People do this whole avoiding thing and it does not help in the long term, does it? No. And you know, with, with our whole, whole post COVID reality here too, you know, that the, the kind of health situation in the country and and globally certainly can be a stressor for people and, you know, add on top of that, all the unique things going on in their lives. I never have any difficulty understanding why somebody might be experiencing some anxiety or depression. You know, there's a lot of challenges in the world. The question, you know, becomes is what, what are people kind of willing to do to move forward? Um, I had a student once who, who described a really interesting way to approach challenging and supporting people through through problems, and she she conceptualized it as a, a challenge and support sandwich, and and the idea was maybe give people like two two um, instances of support before the challenge, right? So it's like give them a little nurturance and encouragement, and then maybe challenge just so you're you're not overwhelming. You know, you kind of have to balance when to challenge and when to support, and certainly that can be a um, an art, if you will. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I'd always have like the sandwich of like, if I had to call, um, a child's home for behavior or something, Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, so-and-so has been, you know, I've, I'm so, I've known them for a year and it's been so great knowing them lately. There's just been some stuff coming up where they've just been, you know, either really talkative during or talking back or something. And, you know, I know this is something that we can work on. I'm just, I would love to know if you could help me through this or, you know, is there something going on or I'd love to work together. It's that, you know, positive issue and then and with a positive sandwich and then people aren't defensive. Yeah. Right? And, and, it, take, and- it takes down that barrier. I, I agree. I apologize for, for interrupting you there. Um, no, you're good. I, I think, um, you know, certainly viewing yourself as a partner with somebody is kind of a, a good way to conceptualize it, right? Because people are the best experts in their own lives. I mean, you may have some disciplinary expertise for what, like if somebody, you know, wants to learn how to, you know, do a new kind of art and you have that expertise, 
you know, certainly you could share that. But, you know, they bring with them their knowledge of themselves, what they want, how they see the world. And, you know, that's unique to them. And only they could bring that forward and, and share that. So um, it's kind of the same thing with, you know, people who are helping others, right? There's a lot of really um, unique components to each person and their styles to doing that may vary greatly, but, um, you know, it, it can really, um, like, I'll give you an example of, of a, so I had a, a, a former professor and, and somebody I still know professionally who I admire very much in terms of, you know, their ability to help others. And so they, they were working with somebody who was cutting themselves. And so one of the key underlying issues there is, is a perceived lack of control in your life. And so if you can't control you know, some of the things in your situation, you know, sometimes you can um, control it physically if you can't control it, you know, mentally in other ways. And so, you know, controlling pain by cutting yourself is, is a maladaptive strategy that some people can develop. And, and this person that I knew, they helped them stop cutting themselves with a plant. <laughs> and I'm like, how did that happen? And, and so the only thing this person identified in their lives as an in or their life rather as an interest was plants. And so uh, this therapist that was working with them, they got them to pull a leaf off the plant every time they felt the compulsion to cut themselves. And so they were able to see you know, I don't want to cause pain unnecessarily or damage to this plant. And then through that realization, they were able to see, you know, ah. I don't want to damage myself and how much more valuable am I than a plant? And so through that, they were able to resolve a really serious problem. And then, you know, from there, they, they worked it out and were able to get back to work and meaningful relationships and hopefully some creativity in their lives. And, you know, it's, it's really cool how something that people might write off can be a platform for them to, um, you know, get what they want out of life again. Well, I think what you were just saying before, it's like acknowledging what the challenge is. Here he's being a listener because he was listening to things that this person was interested in. And then, you know, who knows how many times other things were tried um, right. in because you're going to try things and they may not work or they might work, but then he was willing to give this a try. And then it was, had a successful outcome. So, wow, that's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And an art teacher actually taught me that lesson that you just described there. So um, I used to take some pottery lessons from this um, person named Skip Sensbach. He owns a, pottery studio called green dog pottery i believe he's operating it out of maryland and he's also a an art teacher there but um i was making some plates in his studio and i had carved this really intricate design of, of a woman's head with this you know i thought it was kind of cool hair and you know i applied a glaze in a way that was pretty neat and i got so caught up in how much i enjoyed just this one plate and how it came out so he took it and he broke it and I was, kind of, I, was kind of, I was kind of mad initially. I was like, why did you do that? But then it was one of the best gifts that ever happened because he said, make eight more. And, and I did. And I started to detach myself from the product a little bit more. And so I created four more that were better than that initial one. And so what I had done was I had locked myself into you know, this one thing because it was the best I had done, but it wasn't the best that I could do. And so through, through making more, 
you know, I learned that, um, you know, it, it, it's worth um, throwing a lot of things and seeing what sticks to the wall when we're at the problems, problem solving stage, right? So um, I used to work uh, with a graphic designer for a little while too. I worked at a social service agency that also owned a magazine. And as a result, uh, I got involved in some editing and graphic designing. And um, part of how I learned that lesson there too was when, when you're naming a business or coming up with a tagline, like all the different ways to do that. So, um, you know, that's a, another perfect example of how art has shaped my perspective about problems and trying to um, come up with new solutions and things like that, that I would have never had available to me had I not had those artistic exposures for sure. I love it. So yeah, so as we're getting to the top of the hour, I want to dive into more of this aspect of who you are. Like, the, what do you want to talk to me about? Like the painting, the sculpture, the recording an album, take it where you want. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, I, I've uh, shown, shown and developed some art um, over the years. And so when I went to graduate school, when I was getting my master's degree in social work, um, I was a residence director. And so I, I worked for my tuition. But one of the nice advantages to that situation was I could kind of take as many credits as I wanted. And so I took what I needed to for my graduate program, but I was able to um, start taking some art classes just for my own pleasure. And so I took a two-dimensional and a three-dimensional design class while I was in grad school and found it to be a good stress reliever, but also, you know, just satisfied that creative urge. And one of my painting major friends, um, Brooke, was kind enough to share her painting studio with me so I could leave some canvases and things there. And so... I kind of got involved in art. And then um, I had some friends who ran a small literary press called Paper Kite Press. And so they had a, a little art gallery they wanted to start in Edwardsville, Pennsylvania. And so I helped them to start an art gallery there and kind of coordinated the, the art shows for a number of years. And so kind of did that and then, you know, showed some work at colleges and different galleries for a little bit. And then I've always played music and recorded an album for my own pleasure and, um, you know, released that under the name Coal Miner Canary, um, M-I-N-O-R. It's on Spotify if you care to listen. Oh, um, wait, so spell that again, please. Uh, so it's Coal, C-O-A-L, Miner, uh -huh. M-I-N-O-R, okay. Canary. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so cool. th that's kind of, but um, since I've been working on my dissertation and things like that, I haven't had... Uh, a ton of time to commit to the art, but hopefully when I finish uh, my, my dissertation project, I'll be able to loop a little bit more painting or, or music back in just, just for my own pleasure and just brings me a lot of joy in my personal life. And so there's actually um, this concept in, in the profession of social work or helping professions, the medical profession called self-care. And so it's this idea that we need to um, care for ourselves in order to be the best at caring for others. And so what I found is, you know, finding those outlets, often creative outlets, it, it's almost an ethical imperative that we do that so that we're more balanced and whole for the people that we work with. So, you know, even if it's just finding a couple minutes, like um, my brother was recently sick and my mom and I were sitting there kind of, you know, when, when he wasn't um, as participatory in the conversation, we just kind of drew so she was taking an art class and had some extra, you know, paper there and I hadn't done anything in a long time. So I spent an hour, 
kind of uh, just drawing something to to share with her just for for my own pleasure. And, you know, it was a relaxing thing. And so sometimes art can be for pleasure and sometimes, you know, it could be more exploring a particular concept or a little bit more technical. And it's just kind of beautiful to find more of those things and, um, you know, immerse yourself in it and, and just find more joy in life and more beauty. I love how you said ethical imperative. <laughs> it's so true, this whole self-care component. When I left my um, teaching position after teaching for 30 years in various spaces, um, when I got the piece of paper saying, are you coming back in the fall? I was like, nope, I'm not. <laughs> I kind of had my FU51s. I was like, I'm more than halfway there. Mm -hmm. And I want to work with adults in this whole adulting thing. And this whole thing that we do not often self-care um, because we get caught up in the whole hamster wheel like we talk about so much. But we don't take, like you're saying so beautifully, time to do things that give ourselves joy, which could look many different ways for different people, which could be cooking, simple as drinking something that makes you feel good, like making juice in the morning, like, oh, I don't have time to do that. You can take 15 minutes to do that. Like we have time. Um, uh, eating something that, that, or making a meal that is, maybe you're not the best cook, but you've always wanted to try something. Maybe you want to run. Maybe you've just never really run before, but you're interested in it. So this whole exercise, it's something that is a self-care component and it brings you joy. It doesn't mean that we have to quit our jobs and, you know, throw everything away. If you do, fine. <laughs> but it's caring for ourselves so we can have this better connection, just like you said. So you can connect to yourself, you can connect to others, you can, there's just so many benefits. You show up in such a better way. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're biological, psychological, social and spiritual beings, right? And, and we need to attend to those things. And so I think finding your creativity certainly is a way to do that. And I appreciated what you said about, you know, sometimes taking a different direction. And so while the school may have wanted you to stay, and certainly there would be some value there, it may not be the place that's the fit for where you're headed. And so, you know, stepping out into brave territory can be scary, but it's often um, the thing that's necessary for growth and, and for that joy and to, to kind of emerge. So I, I kind of think of creativity as being necessary, though, because we can teach people technical information and we often do that. Right. So um, people might, you know, benefit from learning a theory or they might benefit from learning some techniques, whether that be artistic or in helping or medical professions or whatever context that's applicable for each individual. But um, learning to think for yourself and critically um, has immense value because technology becomes outdated, approaches change, right? But the, abil the, the ability to um, think in novel ways and, and be comfortable in uncharted waters is really important, I think, for um, you know, being able to help people throughout your lifetime or, or to, all, to create meaningful work or whatever it is. So um, I think creativity just is one of those things that's necessary. And unfortunately, it gets a, a bad rap sometimes. It's one of those things that when funding gets tight, people want to cut or, or do things like that. And it makes my heart hurt because, you know, it's one of the most essential things for people to, um, 
to, to you know just to be able to enjoy life and, and find value and, and meaning and beauty and um, you know ways to help others. Right. Thank you for saying that. And it just makes me think of at the beginning of the whole pandemic, um, a fellow art teacher shared a post from a second grade teacher uh, in a public school. And basically the letter went something to the effect of an apology letter to specialist teachers. And um, she said, I never appreciated you. And what I've come to realize in all of this happening around us, that you are actually the most important teachers because here I thought that I was just dropping the kids off and I'd have a free period, but everything that they were learning, she's like, what are we turning to in the pandemic? We're turning to cooking, we're turning to journaling, we're turning to music, we're turning to all these different forms of expression, which is everything (laughs) within these creative fields. So she's like, uh, so I apologize. And you are the most important people in the school. Yeah, it is very important. Um, It it reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. He talks about the idea that I think it's something like friendship is unnecessary. He was talking about friendship, but he also mentioned like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value, but rather it's one of those things that gives value to survival. So when we're going through this withdrawal and we're having to distance from each other, you know, certainly I think art and creative pursuits are one of those things that I'm finding in my practice. And also, you know, just seeing in others around me, it's what's keeping people um, going and, you know, getting through a lot of things is finding some creativity in their space. And like you said, it could be cooking a good meal, could be, you know, um, observing some beauty in nature, uh, you know, in your neighborhood, yep. or, or it could be sitting down and putting the pen to, to paper or, you know, putting some paint on the canvas. Yep. Yep. So this is like leading right in. And do you have anything else to add to the third question, which wraps it up, which is, so why is creativity important? I, I think, you know, the answer I'd mentioned before where, you know, it's, it's about um, finding different approaches to a problem. So I would say, it's better to develop multiple approaches to resolve problems. Not not everything fits for every situation. So, learning to think uh, in a reflexive way that's um, mostly possible through learning creative uh, creative things, I think, is is really important. So, I would just encourage your listeners to um, you know value what it is they do that's creative and also consider what new things they can do and how they can share it with others i had a a mentor once who talked about being in three relationships at any one time and it was be in relationships where you're mentoring somebody be in relationships where someone's mentoring you and be in mutually beneficial relationships where it's more relaxing or there's more of a mutuality in the relationship and i think you could link creativity into all three of those contexts to find some pleasure, to help others, and to be helped yourself. Mm, I love that. That's amazing. And the last part of what you said, which I believe is so key, is surround yourself with people that get you and will lift you up and promote this kind of feeling in this space. Because you know that, we all know this, if you're surrounding yourself with people who don't believe in you or are negative and all of this stuff, you're just going to close up and not be expressive. Well, 
I believe in your listeners and I believe in your creativity and I appreciate your taking the time to allow me to talk a little bit about mine. I am so grateful, David, that you took this hour to be in this space. Thank you so much. And how can people connect with you? How can people find out more about who you are? So um, davidhaig.com is where I make my primary digital home. Um, that's where my counseling information is and information for students. My geriatric care management practice is at pathwayseniorcare.com. So if you're in the Pennsylvania area and need some help um, navigating the challenges of aging, we're there. And then lastly, um, coalminercanary.com uh, would be my my uh, website for my musical endeavors, um, but it hasn't been touched in a few years. So I apologize. <laughs> well, you're kind of having a lot of stuff going on. You're a busy guy. But that's okay. You you're know, really. There are times and places for things, and creativity will always be part of my, my uh, process for sure. Well, it sounds like it will be. So um, before I go into my whole ending spiel, is there any final words that you feel like you want to say, or are you good? I just want to express my gratitude to you for the conversation and inviting me. It's it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, David. It's fun talking to you. I feel like we could keep talking and talking. Well, to be continued offline. Perhaps. <laughs> there we go. So this space is all about inspiring each other, connecting and sharing stories. So please like, follow, share so we can lift each other up. I believe we have always needed this, but I think we need it now more than ever. This connection, like we've been saying all throughout this, is just so important. So I wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, a good evening, wherever you are in this world, and look forward to talking to you again soon. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Feeling inspired? There are so many ways to do things for you, to get yourself moving, to get your creative juices flowing, and to have fun. Check out I Am Creative and Express Yourself Publishing. Go to IamCreativePhilly.com, IamCreativePhilly, P-H-I-L-L-Y.com, and check out the experiential kits. Check out Creative Shui, which is all about creative inspiration and guidance. And for Express Yourself Publishing, there's so many multi-author book opportunities. So I would love to chat with you so much. Everybody has, everybody's creative. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has an expression. And I can't wait to meet you. Thank you so much for taking this hour to listen to our stories and share the energy. And I wish you a wonderful morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in this world. Bye, everybody.